This is an ABC podcast. This is RN, you're in the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. Welcome to the program and a conversation with someone who is a Buddhist, a feminist, a very active campaigner for women's rights, but who's had to come to terms with some of the vocabulary. When I was young, I wanted to be a monk. Somehow the word monk had such a magical ring to it. It was just so splendid. And the word nun just sounded so sort of weak and even undesirable. So it took me a long time to own being a woman. Why is it that these words should have such a different valence? You see, a monastery just sounds so exotic, so desirable. But a nunnery? Mm, I'm not sure. Her name is Karma Lekshe Somo. She's a professor of Buddhist studies at the University of San Diego and co-founder of Sakyadita, the International Association of Buddhist Women, which has existed since 1987 to unite and promote the welfare of Buddhist women around the world. Sakyadita holds an international conference every two years, and the most recent one was held in the Blue Mountains, west of Sydney, last month. So I took the opportunity to catch up with Karma Lekshe Somo as we were both happening to pass through Sydney. And it was, I hope you'll agree, a very interesting conversation. We began by talking about the way in which Buddhist teaching is grounded in the idea of a radical equality among human beings, and yet there's still the need for a Buddhist feminism. I think all religions have high ideals, but we don't always match up to our ideals, do we? I mean, in theory, of course, all beings have the potential to become awakened. That's what the Buddha taught, to become liberated from our greed, hatred, ignorance, and all that stuff. Uh, the problem is that it doesn't always translate into social realities. But what are some of the particular problems for Buddhist women? And I know that's a very broad term. We'll go to sort of break that down into particular cultures and particular traditions. But just very broadly, what's driving the development or what's driving the need for a feminist approach today? What's actually wrong? Well, I think that when we look at Buddhist cultures, first, they're all very diverse with different colors of the robes, different languages, even different philosophical traditions, different practice traditions. But in each one, we'll find that the institutions are dominated by men almost exclusively. So this is the heart of the problem is how can we gain greater representation, greater participation, full participation for women in these traditions. And feminism, although it's um, you know, maybe a modern usage, the term is basically that women should have all they need enough food, enough, um, you know, education, healthcare, all that, that women should have equal participation in, and that women are fully human, you see, and fully part of the human family. In fact, the human family depends on women. So it makes sense that they should have more opportunities, equal opportunities. In fact, within these traditions, it would be to the benefit of all of us. There are some particular stumbling blocks or challenges, though, aren't there? If, if you consider something like the, the, the famous quote of the Buddha is recorded of have, as having said that um, ordaining women would halve the life of the sasana, how do you get around something like that? Well, you know, these traditions, these teachings were passed orally for hundreds of years, and we really don't have any historically documented words of the Buddha. All we have are the texts, which were written down several hundred years after 
the Buddha passed away. The scribes were all male. The orators, the ones who narrated these stories for hundreds of years, were all male. And so it's not impossible that certain perspectives might have influenced the way they were transmitted. So, in other words, we have no historically documentable material to say that these are actually, in fact, the words of the Buddha, the idea that he hesitated to admit women to the Buddhist order. How could that be true? If he was enlightened, he must have known that women had full capabilities, right? And then we know that the prophecy that's recorded is embedded into a text that was actually written much earlier. So, when you look at the text, it's clear that these stories were added later. Uh, but even so, if we take them at face value, they say that if women are admitted to the order, then the Buddhist teachings will die out after 500 years. But 500 years later, the teachings were still going strong. So the texts start to read, if women are admitted to the order, then the teachings will die out after a thousand years. And then next 1,500 years, and now here we are, 2,500 years later, and we're actually seeing a renaissance of the Buddhist teachings throughout the world. So, obviously, it didn't work out as the text predicted, so perhaps these were not, in fact, the words of the awakened one. <laughs> what about the fact that the Buddha appears as a male? He has to be one or the other, and he's a male. Mm -hmm. Yes, what does it mean for women in any religious tradition when the representation of human perfection is in male form? Um, I think that the Buddha's words in confirming or teaching that women have equal potential for awakening is pretty clear, maybe clearer than many other traditions. At the same time, having appeared in a male body, it would seem that uh, men have an edge, you know, they have an advantage in all of this. And uh, because of patriarchy, that's actually been the case. But there's nothing intrinsically sort of superior about men. In fact, some people think the fact that the Buddha was a male meant that he had more to overcome, especially that he had more of a challenge in eliminating desire for example, in particular, actually. And that's why being a male is maybe harder, harder in the sense of harder to overcome desire. Where for women, it's not such a big deal. And so, but that's just a theory. Is that an old theory, though? Is that something that we see being discussed way back in the earliest years of the, of the tradition, or is that a theory that has come more through sort of modern interpretations, would you say? Yeah, I would say that gender studies is a, pretty recent field. That kind of gender analysis is really a more modern phenomenon. Maybe in the last 30 years, we see this kind of uh, hermeneutics. And of course, the Christian hermeneutics gender analysis started much earlier. We're a little bit late to the game, but then we can build on some of the theories that have developed. And in reading texts through a feminist lens, it's really fascinating. Yeah, reading the text through the feminist lens, this is something that I, I, I find really interesting. And I wonder what the strategy is, because there are many different feminist approaches to sacred texts, right? There, there's the approach that says, well, if you just read the text in the right way, then you get to the truth of the text. And then there's another approach which would say, well, 
there's no real truth inherent to the text at all. It's it's just how we interpret the text, and that's how we come up with a feminist reading. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Whether it's something really sort of uh, essential in the in the tradition, or whether it's something that develops through time and history? Well, from a Buddhist perspective, everything is a matter of interpretation. We interpret our experience moment to moment. And each person interprets it differently. So if we look at Buddhist from a Buddhist philosophical standpoint, it makes sense that uh, it's all about interpretation. But the Buddhists don't do intrinsic, really, because it's all interdependent, you know, and things change all the time. So look at the changes that we've made in the last 30 years since we started our work, or even saying the last 50 years of human society, where, you know, women's perspectives have begun to be taken seriously, and women have started to come into our power and to actually become a force for change positive change in the world. I mean, it's quite remarkable, isn't it? So, that shows, actually, that verifies what the Buddha said, that all things are interdependent, all things are impermanent. So, that's good news, because we can change what we want to get rid of, and women can help. So, I think for me, also, it's really about optimizing the human potential, human potential in the world for good. So, if we bracket off for the moment the challenges or the or the opportunities even for women in intentional Buddhist communities. What about women who are just women living in Buddhist societies, traditional Buddhist countries? What are the sorts of issues there? Well, I think that women in Buddhist societies face some of the same challenges that women in all societies do. You know, rates of domestic violence and so forth are, are very high. Uh, there is a preference for males. If a family is poor and can only afford to send one child to school, the tendency is to send the male child. Now, all of these things are changing but we really still do have to deal with issues like domestic violence and so on, um, gender discrimination in the workplace, um, the same social issues that other societies are dealing with, Buddhist societies do too. And that's where we really have to start to apply uh, the, the principles to everyday experience and be honest about it. I mean, not to try to cover up some of these problems, but to deal with it. I mean, gross national happiness. Does it really include women? Or did they forget to interview them? Hmm. <laughs> are these things that Buddhist institutions in these countries are paying attention to? Things like domestic violence, for example? Um, they're starting to. They're starting to, yes. And uh, there was, I mean, a woman's shelter. The first women's shelter in Thailand, for example, was established in around 1980. So it's late, but at least they've gotten started. But I think there are a lot more conversations to be had. Personally, I think that gender training should be offered in all the companies, all of the offices, all of the monasteries, all of the schools, uh, everywhere. I think we all need that. Right, So, I think we have a lot of work to do in terms of gender awareness overall and the Buddhist, in Buddhist societies as well. Well, you've been doing this work for quite a while. You founded the um, Sakyadita, co-founded Sakyadita, the um, International Association for Buddhist Women. What were some of the challenges involved in setting that up? Did you meet any resistance to that? Uh, yes, we did. Uh, people were suspicious. What are you doing? I would get notes, you know, from monks saying, are you trying to compete with the monks and these sorts of things. We got very little support on any level, either financial or moral support. So, we've really had quite a struggle in this work, but we just 
you know, marched on. And in the end, you know, just the struggle itself has been part of the process. It's made us stronger. Um, it's helped us to find our voices, to articulate our experience. Many times it was tempting to just give up. Some people said, oh, it's too early. Buddhist women aren't ready for this. Buddhist societies aren't ready to accept change. But we decided it was time, definitely time, and thank heaven we did, right? I mean, there's still much more to be done, but at least we've got a good start on it. So, um, actually, in fact, women do not get that much support. We're not taken seriously. Our entry on Wikipedia was rejected three times because really? after some research, we found they said, oh, this is just a women's thing. Well, excuse me. <laughs> it is the largest organization representing maybe up to 600 million Buddhist women in the world. And yet, men can get their companies posted up there with nothing, but we had to jump through numerous hoops to get Sakadita on Wikipedia. That's ridiculous, right? So, there's still power is still concentrated in male hands, both financial power, military power, political power. Um, and therefore, women really often have to work harder for representation, to gain a voice, and to help change things. This is The Philosopher's Zone on RN. I'm David Rutledge. This week, talking with Karma Lekshe Somo, who's co-founder of Sakyadita, the International Association of Buddhist Women. If we talk about the teaching or the philosophy, do you see it heading in a direction where gender becomes irrelevant? Because you have this tension in secular feminism, don't you, where on one hand, that's the goal in a way, to get to the point where gender doesn't or shouldn't matter anymore. But then on the other hand, you have a kind of feminism that says, no, it's very important to recognise and valorise particular qualities and attributes that are women's qualities and attributes. Hmm. Um, you know, ultimately, we could say that enlightenment or awakening is beyond gender, because here we're talking about the mind, and mind simply means uh, awareness, mindful awareness, clear knowing. So, that is the same for men and for women or for other you know, identities, gender identities. Now, on the other hand, if we erase gender, we run into a lot of problems too, because we are gendered beings. We have, we're, we're born with certain sexual characteristics. Even if we're cisgender, we still have, so, I mean, we have certain identities that we grow up with in society. We're, we're shaped by uh, certain messages that we, we get from society and so forth. And the issue really became hot when uh, a book appeared called Beyond Gender by a, a religious studies scholar named Rita Gross. And she said, she asserted that, in fact, awakening is beyond gender and we just need to get over it. But the trans community was not very happy about this because they thought that, well, you know, we've struggled for so long to gain recognition for our in-between or our transgender uh, identity, and there are many different, of course, variations on this. Uh, and so now you're telling us that we should just forget about it? They weren't very happy with that perspective. So I think for when I was young also, I wanted to be a monk. And somehow the word monk had such a magical ring to it. It was just so splendid. And the word nun, 
just sounded so sort of weak and even undesirable. So it took me a long time to own being a woman and being wanting to be a nun rather than wanting to be a monk. Why is it that these words should have such a different valence? You see, a monastery just sounds so exotic, so desirable, but a nunnery? Mm, I'm not sure. So I've been using the word monastery for women for two reasons. One is that I should hope that these monasteries would also be open to lay women, but also because monastery just, it can be for either men or women. So why not use that non-gender term? So it's a, it's an ongoing question. I think we have much more um, to uh, investigate here, much more to explore when it comes to these issues of, of gender identity. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? It, it makes me wonder about Sakadita, the organization for women that you co-founded, and the way in which there may be a tension there where you have women who have suffered um, mistreatment at the hands of men and are looking for a women's only space. Does Sakadita offer that kind of space? Um, generally speaking, we've taken an inclusive approach from the beginning. All of the conferences have been open to men and women and people of all gender identities from the very beginning and of all religions, all philosophical perspectives. We made a conscious um, decision to be inclusive from the beginning. That being said, the conferences generally are primarily women. And it is a space, uh, a safe space for women. Um, the few men who do come are allies and very understanding. And I think we've had very few complaints that they needed a women-only space. Mind you, some of the uh, events, some of the workshops and so forth would be all women, but we've never sort of excluded anyone. So that's just the way we've been operating so far. I know that some Buddhist retreats are women only, and women find great value in that because of some, some of the experiences that they've had in the past. So I think it's good to offer that also. Do you think that as one's practice matures and one becomes more skillful in living according to Buddhist teaching, that things like gender and feminism become less important? Well, in an ideal world, yes. I mean, we should hope that they would. But unfortunately, we find that, you know, gender discrimination and even sexual abuse continue even now in the 21st century. In fact, it's coming to light more than ever before, uh, possibly because of the Me Too movement or uh, possibly somehow women are becoming more, uh, feeling more, comfortable coming forward to report their experiences. So, um, I don't think that it's over yet, maybe in the future sometime. But for now, uh, we really need these discussions. There's a, a great need for more dialogue, more understanding, uh, more knowledge for all of us. What about something like anger, a sort of righteous anger, which is very much fueling the Me Too movement? Do you think that there is a certain level of anger at injustice that's necessary to be an effective feminist and that a sort of perfect equanimity can make you less able to or less inclined to fight if fighting is what's needed? Well, in the Buddhist tradition, anger is considered an unwholesome 
mind state. So the kind of righteous indignation that you're speaking of, I think, can be helpful for motivating us um, as social activists to take a greater role in opposing injustice. And that's very, very important. But anger itself is not helpful according to the Buddhist perspective. Now, in fact, it can even be a hindrance. People can get stuck in that mode of resentment and um, constant anger that actually debilitates them. So I think that we need to, in the Buddhist perception, through meditation and other practices, to learn how to better channel um, that sense of righteous indignation. This is just not acceptable and we must do something about it but not to get caught up in anger. I don't see that the Me Too movement is necessarily generated or motivated by anger so much as a sense that enough is enough and now we must speak out. What about the notion of non-self and the spiritual qualities of, of, of surrender or humility, which are, seem central to Buddhist teaching? I wonder if that can be a two-edged sword for women in that women in patriarchal cultures have enough trouble realizing themselves and their identities in the first place. And it's fine to ask a man to relinquish the self, but what about a woman who hasn't had the privilege of, of being a fully realized self in the first place? Is that a, a tall order? Well, I think this is an excellent question, actually, and something that we need to consider very carefully because, in a sense, uh, you're absolutely right. It's sort of like, you know, poverty, you know, voluntary and involuntary poverty. It's easier to to give up things if you've already had them already. Mm. But it's slightly different in that understanding the true nature of the self, um, getting over clinging to one's self-identity and self-cherishing, uh, cherishing oneself more than others. Okay, and here's where the two-edged sword comes in. Women have been trained. I mean, most of us have been trained since early childhood to get rid of self-cherishing uh, and to, uh, to serve others, right? And on one from a spiritual point of view, that's been excellent training because many of us, I hope, uh, at least we've had an opportunity to learn to try to get the self out of the way so that my needs are, are not the center of the universe, right? We can get beyond that. And that's been a very good thing. Look at how many social activists, social workers, teachers, and so forth are women who actively dedicate their lives to others. Not that men don't, but it's obvious that a lot of women do. Now, the other edge of the sword is that sometimes humility and this kind of selflessness has not worked well for women that um, sometimes women have um, been trampled and their rights have been violated and sometimes they've been too sort of self-deprecating to stand up for their own needs and, and so forth. And that's something that we have to look at very carefully. How can we step forward and stand up for what women need without becoming proud, arrogant, and self-centered? You see, there must be a middle way, and the Buddha was always big on the middle way. So hopefully we can find uh, a, a middle way between self-cherishing and um, self-abnegation. So there's a healthy sense of self uh, for Buddhist women and for all sentient beings that will help us to function with more kindness, uh, more compassion, and more wisdom in the world. Carl, I, I want to finish up with a couple of more general questions. Buddhism 
is often spoken of as a religion, as a spiritual discipline, as a, as a secular body of thought, as a practice, right? All these sort of related but different things. What about if we throw the word philosophy into the mix? How do you feel about the concept of Buddhist philosophy? And if somebody were to say to you, why are you talking on a, on a philosophy radio program? <laughs> what would you say? Well, I think that Buddhism is many things to many people. And uh, to uh, pretend that Buddhism isn't a religion, well, all you have to do is to go into a temple and see people's devotion. It's clear that, that Buddhism does look like a religion, um, in many contexts, but it certainly is also a philosophy because from the very beginning, the Buddha taught certain principles and debated principles. I mean, he was an Indian or Nepali, whatever. They had didn't have that border at the time, but yeah. he was teaching in northern India where philosophy is like so much valued. And uh, since that time, over the last 2,500 years, so many different um, streams of philosophical analysis have developed to a very high degree. I mean, this, this um, interaction between Western philosophy and Buddhist philosophy has just begun. And to do it well, you see, you need to know both sides, and there are only a few people who can do that. So, I think we're just getting started with this, but it's very exciting. So, I think definitely Buddhism would qualify as a philosophy with great depth, you know, and can weigh in on a lot of contemporary social issues, like end-of-life issues and, you know, issues of all kinds of ethical issues and um, and interface well with uh, contemporary philosophies of all kinds, including Western philosophy, you know. It's very interesting. It is interesting, and I, I agree with you that it's exciting, and there's this sense of it all just getting started. And at the same time, I sometimes feel that the closer you look at Buddhism, the more the ism sort of starts to disappear, and the ideas and the thoughts and the theories really, I wonder if there's a sense in which all of that, all the philosophy, all the teaching is really just a series of stepping stones to the point where it is just a person sitting in a room practicing, meditating. Well, the Buddha never set out to develop an ism. Some say he wasn't even a Buddhist because there wasn't such a thing as Buddhism at Jesus the time. Jesus was a Christian. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, the idea is um, to understand the nature of the mind, to understand the nature of the human experience. It, it, it really doesn't depend on a membership or even a religious identity. You know, so I think that we can actually set aside all those isms. The isms are having, are actually causing a lot of problems as we can see in the world today. Let's go beyond that and, and try to understand the quality of the human mind. How does it function? It gets very close to cognitive psychology, actually, mm. and neuroscience. And this is also a very um, exciting intersection of explorations that's going on today. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama's really keen on this kind of dialogue. So, I hope that we can do more of this and see more of this um, at, for the benefit of all of us. And it will also help to sort of transgress or cut through some of these um, barriers, these boundaries that people create for themselves with these isms, which are causing so many problems, right? If we were to look at the different views, philosophical and religious views on the nature of, of consciousness, for example, how freeing might this be? Maybe we could really go into much greater depth and understanding 
Yeah, it is a very interesting dialogue. And I just want to say this has been a very interesting dialogue. And I want to thank you, Carmel Ekshay, so much. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. It's been a great joy. Yes. And Karma Lekshay Somo is Professor of Buddhist Studies at the University of San Diego and co-founder of Sakyadita, the International Association of Buddhist Women. And if you're interested in hearing more about Buddhism and women and ordination and related issues, then RN's God Forbid program was recently looking at all of those questions and much more besides. So we'll be putting a link to God Forbid on our website. You can find us at abc.net.au slash rn. We are the Philosopher's Zone and you'll find us on the program menu. And that's it for the program this week. I'm David Rutledge. Our producer is Diane Dean, and you can also find us via the ABC Listen app. You can tweet at me if you like. I'm at David P Zone. It's currently the world's most boring Twitter feed because it's only been up for about a week, but you have the power to change all that. Get on there and tweet at me. I will respond with love and gratitude and as much philosophical depth as I can muster in 280 characters. Thanks very much for your company this week. It's been a pleasure. And we'll see you next time. Bye for now. Bye.